happy to offer that to, to you, so feel free to take your kids if you'd like. Uh, everybody else, we will be in John 19 today, so if you have a Bible, please turn with me there. If you didn't bring one, underneath the chairs in front of you, there should be a Bible there you can pull out, and if you don't own one, feel free to take that and use it as your own. Towards the beginning of it, just like any book, there's a table of contents. You can look up the Gospel of John in the New Testament, and we'll be in chapter 19 together. If you are new to Church on Mill, our habit on Sunday mornings is to simply open the Bible and work our way paragraph by paragraph through the books in the Bible, because we believe the Bible to be God's Word, God's speaking to us. And in the endless array of things that we hear, God's Word is the only trustworthy source through which we can build our lives. So we'll be in John 19 uh, today. Last week, we covered together the incredibly important and graphic crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, today, we're going to look at the period of time, which is probably no more than a few minutes. The sermon will be longer than the moment was. Uh, Between when Jesus said, it's finished, and he breathed his last breath, and then when he was taken down off the cross, which is what we'll look at next week. But what happened in that span of a few minutes between when he died and when he was taken off the cross? We're going to consider that this morning. So happy Mother's Day, right? Light, easy text for us this morning. Whoever plans this didn't think that through very well. I'll have to take it up with him. Oh, wait, that's me. But uh, we'll find today that uh, John not only tells us what happened, but he explains to us the significance of what it means. Frankly, this is not an easy message. It's not an easy text. And um, for even those of us who are very familiar with the Bible, there's some weird stuff in here. There's like blood and guts. And so the teenagers are happy. All the rest of us are concerned, but I hope that all of us today could be encouraged uh, by God's Word. John's going to tell us in this paragraph that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, and because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, He's also the perfect solution. And so as I read this passage, would you watch for that? And then for the next 35 minutes or so, we're going to consider together the significance of those two ideas. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, and Jesus is the perfect solution. Let's look at verse 31 of chapter 19. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. This is not the Jewish leaders asking that their own legs might be broken. The guys on the cross, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. Now this is John saying, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I am an eyewitness. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth 
that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Let's consider together first that Jesus is uh, the perfect sacrifice. Way back last August, when we started covering the book of John together, we found in the first chapter a man named John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Here it says in verse 29 of chapter 1, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From John chapter 1 through John chapter 19, we have seen Jesus growing up, living a perfect life of obedience to the Father, constantly caring for people, compassionately aiming to meet their needs, obediently listening to the leading of the Spirit. And all of that was building up to this moment, John chapter 19, when Jesus would die in place of sinners. Now, what is this strange announcement that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Well, for maybe half or two-thirds of this message, we're going to talk about some very odd ideas. And then, for those of you who have hung with me, we're going to apply them to the everyday stuff of our lives. And so, if you could advance a little trust in me, then I hope you'll find that these odd ideas are enormously applicable. Why did John say Jesus is the Lamb of God? Well, it's because he understood Jesus to be the fulfillment of something talked about way earlier in the biblical story. Your Bible begins with the book of Genesis. It tells us what happened in the beginning. The next book, the book of Exodus, describes God's people, the nation of Israel, captivity in Egypt. And it's about how God rescued them or delivered them out of Egypt. The final blow against the Egyptian gods that led the leader of Egypt to say, yes, Israel, you can go, you're free, no longer do you have to serve as slaves was an event that became known as Passover. Now again, I recognize this is weird, especially if you've never read it. But here's what happened. God was sending a message to the people of Egypt. The gods you are worshiping are not real gods. They're false gods. They can't help you. I am the one true God. And the final way he sent that message is what was known as the angel of death came over the land. And every house where the parents hadn't obeyed God in a particular way, the firstborn, in that, firstborn man in that home died. Imagine waking up tomorrow and in every home where there's a son, that son having passed away. That would be horrible, wouldn't it? It would be unlike anything the world has ever seen since. But the homes that were spared were the homes where a lamb had been offered as a sacrifice and a bit of its blood had been smeared 
around the door. If you've never been in church before, it's way weirder than you thought. So the book of Exodus says this blood was smeared around the door, and when this angel came and passed over, then he passed over those homes where a sacrifice had been offered. And so from that moment on, way back in Exodus, all the way through the rest of your Bible, up until John 19 with Jesus hanging on a cross, the Jews had gotten together every year to celebrate, to remember Passover. They had done so by offering a lamb for every home, and that lamb remembering them how God had delivered them. John is saying, all of that for all these hundreds of years has always been pointing ahead to Jesus because Jesus would serve as the true, once-for-all lamb sacrificed for sinners. Every year, as the Jews remembered, they were looking ahead. And every year since then, as the Christians have looked back, we no longer have had to offer animals as sacrifices because our Savior offered Himself. So John's disclosing that the way Jesus died in very precise detail demonstrates that He was the one always pointing forward to. And therefore, He's the one you can always trust as sufficient to take away your sin. The irony here is pretty incredible. The Jewish leaders wanted the bodies taken off the cross quickly because the day of Passover was coming. And the Old Testament said that anyone who hung on a tree was cursed. And therefore, that body had to be taken down quickly or the leaders and the land and the people would all be unclean. You see the irony? They wanted the body taken down because they were worried about ritual cleanliness. But there was hanging the only body who could ever make them clean. But they didn't see it. Friends, I don't know all of you, and therefore I don't know what you think of Jesus. But if you avoid Jesus, you are avoiding the only one who can make you clean. In our few remaining minutes today, I want to try to explain that to you. There's going to be one graphic thing in the story I need to show you. Well, maybe two. A bonus. We'll give you that one in a little bit. I forgot about it. The first one is the request that their bones might be broken, that they might die more quickly. What is that about? When the Romans would crucify people in the first century, the most typical thing that would happen is after the body had died, after the person had died, they would leave the body hanging on the cross. That body was naked, had been beaten, and that person had suffocated to death. And so cruel was Roman rule that they would leave the person's corpse to rot. And then as the sun burned the flesh, vultures would come and pick at it. It's a disgusting image. But every now and then, there would be some reason that they'd want to speed up the death and get the body down off the cross. 
This was one of those moments. The Jewish leaders, because they didn't want to be thought of as unclean, asked the soldiers to speed up the death. And so the soldiers would go up to a body, would take an iron mallet, and would whack the shins of the person hanging on the cross. This, of course, would mean death was imminent because the way a body hung on a cross was in order to breathe, you had to push up with your legs. And if your shins were shattered, you couldn't do that. You'd suffocate very quickly. Soldiers came to that first man who died next to Jesus, whacked his shins, and he was gasping for his last breath. They went to the second soldier and did the same. Now, one of the other Gospels gives us an interesting and helpful detail. Luke says that one of these two men who was crucified next to Jesus had spent his last minutes joining in the mockery of Jesus. But the other soldier, the the other person crucified, he had come to believe. We would say today that he put his faith in Jesus, that he trusted him that he was saved, that in his last few remaining minutes of life, he became a Christian. Isn't that amazing? Friend, if you're a believer and you have friends, you have family, you have neighbors, you have classmates who are not Christians, don't ever give up praying for them because it might be even in their last minutes they trust in Christ. But this person, this criminal who hung next to Jesus and was in agony dying with him and became a believer, was declared right with God. Even after he trusted Christ, his shins were still whacked with a mallet. And he died in a horrible death. Friends, there is a message spreading all around the gospel, all around the world that's claiming to be the gospel. A message that says if you just trust Jesus, then all your problems will go away. You will be healthy. You will have all the money you could ever want. and Everything will go well. Friends, that isn't the gospel. That soldier still died. I mean, that, why do I keep calling him a soldier? That criminal still died a horrid death, even though he trusted Christ. You see, Jesus didn't promise him the absence of hardship. He promised him, today you will be with me in paradise. The Christian message is a message of hope. It's a message of being made right with God today and being rescued, delivered, carried, helped, aided, secured by God through all the trials of life until one day we meet him face to face be with him forever where there is no more hardship. Friend, being a Christian won't mean you won't suffer. You will. Now, almost certainly none of you are going to get whacked with a mallet and die of suffocation. But you will meet things you never expected. And the gospel isn't the message that God will take all of that away, but that God will see you faithfully through it and usher you into his kingdom. 
Now, when the soldiers came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. And so they didn't break his bones. Now, that seems like a rather unnecessary detail, doesn't it? This is like filler to make sure the Gospel of John's long enough to be counted as a real book. No, there's nothing in the Bible like that. There are no unnecessary, inadvertent, unimportant details. Look at verse 36. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Friends, there's two places in our passage today where John says, this thing happened and this thing happened, and they're both pretty weird, but they happened because the Old Testament said they were going to happen. That Genesis through Malachi, the first two-thirds of the Bible, which all was foreshadowing, pointing forward to, explaining, pre-enacting the life and death of Jesus. He says, this happened because God said ahead of time it was going to happen. But it doesn't, as we said last week, merely prophesy what was to occur. Rather, it tells us the meaning of the events themselves. In other words, Jesus' bones not being broken, we can go back into the Old Testament, read where that was initially talked about, and get a fuller picture of the meaning of Jesus' death. Dorky theologians call this biblical theology, meaning the way the story of the Bible unfolds. It is the most incredible stuff you could ever devote your mind to. Now, way back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, it says, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. Guess what the it is? It's the lamb. It was those lambs in each home we talked about earlier that were offered in place of the firstborn as that angel passed over. So, if you go, I'm going way back in your Bible. Can you see me? <laughs> All the way back to Exodus 12. God said, when you offer that lamb, don't break any of its bones. And don't go get the mangy lamb that's already busted up, the disgusting one, the one that's going to die in a few days anyway. Get a really good one. Why? Sacrifices have always been costly. And they have always been necessary in order to have forgiveness of sin. And forgiveness of sin, we need to understand, must come from a pure source. And so... Its bones not being broken is an indicator of its purity. Now, if we go from Exodus all the way through to Jesus, John's saying, Jesus' bones weren't crushed with a mallet because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, pure in every way, the spotless Lamb of God, 
the one who always and forever had obeyed everything the Father said to do, the one who is the true fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And so the soldiers, not breaking his bones, unknowingly are indicating for us all these years later, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is spotless. Do you recognize what that means? That means if you've trusted Jesus, if you have transferred your allegiance away from yourself, placed it in Jesus Christ, then you've been rescued from your sin and you are now counted pure and right before God. He has declared you in Christ to have offered up the perfect sacrifice. This is, in part, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when the soldiers didn't break his legs, they needed some way to confirm that Jesus was dead. So, they didn't merely, like, shake a leg. They didn't climb up on a ladder and smack him around in the face. These are much more violent people than that. And so they came to Jesus, and here's the other uh, kind of graphic thing we need to talk through. They came to Jesus with a spear. He drove that spear up his side. Their intent was to confirm that Jesus was, in fact, dead. But God's intent was much better than that. Look just at verse 37. Again, in other scriptures say, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. The piercing is the spear. Now go back to verse 34. When one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, at once there came out blood and water. What in the world is this about? Friends, John has demonstrated for us from chapter 1 all the way through 19 that he is a masterful storyteller. And he has taken literal events that happened. So there really was a spear. There really was a soldier. There really was the dead body of Jesus. He really did thrust it up into his side. He really did pull it out, and nastily, blood and water came out. There's all kinds of medical explanations for why that would have happened. But John is telling us this literally happened, and it's filled with symbolic significance. Significance, friends, that may impact you today unlike anything you have ever heard. What's up with the blood and the water? Well, we could explain it like this. Friend, you and I, apart from Christ, are caught in a terrible predicament. The predicament is this. We are all human beings. We're created creatures, not the Creator. And Therefore, we are all obligated to obey God, to follow Him. 
We're all made in His image to represent Him to the world and to each other. That is true of all people everywhere. And yet what's also true of all people everywhere is instead of following our Creator and worshiping Him, we have stiff-armed God and chosen to go our own way. We've chosen to live as though we're in charge, as though we know what's best, as though we are the self-determined people who live autonomously, independently of any help from God, and we can do whatever we want. Now, we've all done that in different ways and to different degrees. But without exception, that has been our life. And here's where the blood and water come into play. That decision that I made and that you made and that we were inevitably going to make because we are people in the likeness of our first parents, Adam and Eve. That decision that we made has rendered us all both guilty and filthy. It has rendered us legally under the condemnation of God and morally filthy, morally unclean, morally impure. And so what we need is something the world can't offer us. What we need is something no amount of education can fix, no amount of better job making more money, no amount of moving to a particular place where things will go better for us circumstantially, no amount of self-esteem, not even something incredibly good like worldly equality and justice. Nothing, even the best things of this world, can fix our guilt and can fix our impurity. We need something from above. We need something from somewhere else. Jesus came in order to offer both freedom from guilt and the cleansing of our impurity. That's what the blood in the water is all about. You see, according to the law, Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And according to the gospel, Jesus offered himself as the perfect solution. That verse 37, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, is a quotation from the Old Testament. This is the second spot where this happens. Listen to these words from Zechariah. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And a couple verses later, the point becomes so wonderfully, amazingly clear. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, that day you will look upon him who has been pierced. There will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Wow! This is incredible. If you don't believe the Bible to be true and trustworthy, 
I got to ask you, how in the world do you take that position? It is one unfolding, most brilliant of all stories. Friends, Jesus is the solution to both guilt and filth. I recognize this sounds crazy, but the answer to the predicament that all of us are caught in is what came out of Jesus' side. You see, the blood of Jesus shed in our place removes guilt. It makes us justified, declared right with God, gives us right standing with Him. If you take notes, just write down Romans 3, 23 to 25. We won't take the time to read it. But that passage says, the blood of Jesus makes us right with God. And so, what resolves guilt? Well, not doing more good things than bad things. What resolves guilt is the pierced side of Christ, the perfect sacrifice from which His blood flowed in order that yours doesn't have to. Now, what resolves filth? What cleanses us? The water that came from Jesus' side. Friend, have you ever done anything that you knew to be wrong, but you did it anyway? And then, immediately, upon completion of whatever that act was, a sense of guilt and shame and filth came upon you. I hope you felt that. I don't have any question you felt that. We all feel that because we all have that as our experience. God has put within us a conscience, Romans 2 says, and that conscience bears witness to us when we break the commands of God. And breaking the commands of God does, in fact, make us morally gross. We live in Phoenix, and in Phoenix we have dust storms. And if you have a car, then you know something about filth. Have you ever stood at the car wash and been spraying your car and then come to find out, I don't actually own a brown car? It is incredible what comes off of those. Friend, that is but the smallest of pictures of our uncleanliness before a perfect God. And no amount of effort of our own part could ever wash it off. Nothing. Even the best things we do, we do for the motive that we might be thought of a particular way. Therefore, even our best deeds apart from Christ are just heaping more dirt and dirt and dirt upon us. We are hopeless and helpless. Except, Jesus didn't die only that we would be declared not guilty, justified, right with God. He also died that we might be washed clean, that we might be made pure, that we would, in fact, no longer be marked, no longer be people of moral disgustingness, but that we'd be clean. Ezekiel 36 put it this way, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people. I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ has cleansed and forgiven, declared right, and made pure. This is what's offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, the water and the blood are not the same thing. Like oil and water, you can dump them together, but they don't mix. But they always go together. You don't have one and not the other. And so let me apply this to our hearts. Friend, if you've trusted Christ, then you are forgiven and you're free. You are right with God and you're righteous before Him. You are loved as His own. You are accepted into the greatest family you could ever imagine, the family of God. You are no longer bound by a guilt you cannot resolve, no matter how hard you try, even with good religious things. And you are no longer marked by a filth that nothing in the world can wash off. The blood of Jesus Christ and His cleansing water have flown, making you right with Him forever. I wish you were a hooping, hollering, yelling people. This would be the moment to do it. And friend, if you are not a follower of Christ, if you have never moved your posture from, I'm in charge, I do what I want, to God, I have sinned before you. I recognize I am hopeless and helpless and there's nothing I can do to fix it. And I believe and trust that Jesus Christ was offered up that I might be made clean, that I might be rendered not guilty. And I transfer my trust from myself to you. Friend, if you've never done that, today can change everything. Today, simply by you trusting in Jesus Christ, believing this message, not because I've said it, but because God says it in His Word, then you will find what the majority of the people in this room have already found to be true. What my dear friends Rob and Sandy and their kids are giving their lives to telling as many people in Italy as can is true. What our three sisters here in our church are flying to Southeast Asia to tell people there on college campuses what's true is that there is a gospel that is great enough for all people everywhere. A gospel that can be declared for you right and pure.
because of Christ, irrespective of what you have done. Won't you trust Him? Won't you turn from sin and turn to Him? In closing, I'd love to tell you about something that happened in 1776. No, I'm not going to go political on you. In 1776, a guy named Augustus wrote a hymn called Rock of Ages. It's one of those hymns I heard as a kid that I thought was goofy and silly and I didn't know what any of it meant. Let me read to you the first verse. So this is as old as the nation. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Brothers and sisters, God has already done that for you. It's not going to happen in the future. It's not dependent on your relative goodness or badness in the last six days, seven days since we were last together. It is not dependent on what, if anything, and how much you put in the offering plate when it's passed in a few minutes. It is a finished, settled, complete work that Christ has done for you already. He has saved you from the wrath of God. And He has made you pure. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You stand with me and let's pray together. Before I voice a prayer for all of us, would you take a moment and just bring yourself to God and react to what He has said to you in His Word?